Welcome to episode 54 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And also dying. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So... Today, we are continuing with our writing mechanics series after a bit of an unplanned hiatus uh, with sentence craft. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, publishing. Yeah. (laughs) Publishing is important. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I apologize, obviously, as I'm sure you can all hear. Um, I have been sick for about a week, and my voice has suffered for it, so I apologize um, for the way that I sound, but I've got my tea here, I'm going to try to power through. Um, Yeah, in in the time since we last recorded, the last time we recorded, it was a happier time. (laughs) It was a different timeline to be... (laughs) The time travelers failed to to avert this, so this is what we're living in now. So we're going to talk about sentences today because that's something we all care about. Yes. Um, don't worry, you guys. We won't really get into politics in this podcast. We're um, going to try real hard. <laughs> Kelly's going to try really hard anyway. Um, but, you know, we won't get overtly political as we do realize that this is a podcast about publishing and writing. So we are going to focus on that today. So... The last time we recorded was about a month ago, so excuse us if we're a little bit rusty trying to get back into this whole podcasting thing. Um, aside from the election, I was away at Yellfest. I was also sick because I had my customary post-travel illness. Um, we also had Thanksgiving, so it's been a little bit of a while before, you know, trying to get my head back in the game. But... Let's talk about sentence craft. Kelly and I wanted to discuss this. I'm just trying to remember the reasons we brought it up. But we wanted to discuss this because we wanted to talk about writing on a sentence level. And I don't think we've really gone into it in our previous podcasts. I don't believe. We've taught, we touched on prose. We've touched on, you know, a little bit things like what makes something purple prose. And, you know, I think... We've repeatedly said that clarity is the most important, Um, but we wanted to get a little bit more specific about what we consider actual good writing. (laughs) Um, So, I don't know. I guess, do you want me to start, Kelly, and say what I... Okay, so obviously there's some personal preference to this. I have mentioned before that I tend to like my writing to be invisible when I'm reading, as in I'm I'm not really paying attention to how it's constructed. I'm not necessarily noticing it if it's super flowery or if it's kind of clunky. Like to me, really great prose is mostly invisible, um, but, you know, it can still affect me in, in moments of high emotion if necessary. So that's what I generally consider good prose. I don't know. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, in general, I also like my prose 
when I'm reading to be invisible um, or to not call attention to itself too much because, you know, I, I think that that the writing itself is sort of secondary. It, it you know, I don't want to be focusing too much on the actual mechanics of the writing. I want to get lost in the story. Yeah. So when we talk about, when I, at least when I talk about invisible writing, you know, obviously we want writers to have a very basic grasp, not just basic, but a very thorough understanding of what makes good English, about how to communicate ideas properly, you know, and sentence craft is not necessarily each individual sentence. It's how those sentences come together to form the story. Because, you know, we talk a lot, you know, people, when people talk about writing, they talk about things like repetition. They talk about things, um, you want to vary your sentences. You want to do this. You want to eliminate the passive voice. You want to blah, 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 blah. There are a lot of rules that come with sentence craft. And I'm not such a stickler for those rules. I do tend to like books to sound naturalistic. So, you know, we don't all speak perfectly, grammar-wise. We use passive construction when we when we have conversations in day-to-day life. So the occasional I was blank, you know, all that sort of stuff doesn't necessarily bother me. It's when you start when it's when you start to notice these things. It's when you start to see preponderance of it in the text like one after another after another without variation. And that's where the problem of repetition comes in too. It's Kelly and I have talked about the, how it's necessary, I think to read your prose aloud because at least for me, when you read your prose aloud, it, it will illuminate those weird bits of repetition, those words that you use a lot more often than you think. Um, when your sentences go on too long, when they're too short, you know, when the sentence structure doesn't change, all of that becomes much more evident when you read it aloud. But then I thought about this too. I grew up with parents who read to me as a child. So for me, the act of reading is very much tied in with, you know, having it read to me, to listening to the language And I don't know how many people do that because I know a lot of people, I mean, I love audiobooks, but I know a lot of people don't actually listen to stories that way. So I don't know. What about you, Kelly? Like, does, do you know people who don't like audiobooks or who don't really listen to the language that way? Because I feel like that's really important for both of us. Yeah. I mean, reading aloud is huge for me and my family and in my marriage and, and my childhood growing up was you know, always about reading aloud. Um, I do know people that, that don't have that, though, or don't think about um, books that way and who engage with text very differently. You know, it's really easy for me to assume that the experience that I have when I'm reading is the same experience that everyone else has. And I have this kind of duality where I hear a narrator in my head. So, like, I hear the words being read in my head at the same time as I'm kind of watching like a movie and creating my own imagery of the scene. I don't see the words on the page. Like obviously I do see the words on the page, but that's not the primary visual that I get when I'm reading. And I know that's very different for some people. Some people are very literally seeing the words on the page and aren't creating images in their mind or aren't hearing a voice in their head, 
you know, reading it to them. And, and so I don't want to assume that my experience is like that because through talking to friends of mine, I've come to learn that everybody has a really different internal experience when they read. Um, I think that even if you are not a person for whom listening to stories, um, is, is the way that you prefer to engage with them, I still recommend reading out loud because it forces you to slow down and it forces you to catch error, errors that you wouldn't otherwise catch. So I do think that even if, even if that's not the way that you prefer to engage with your stories, I do still think it's a valuable practice when you're editing and writing and drafting. Yeah, I mean, because I listen to more audiobooks these days, I do start to notice that uh, a lot more than I used to. Um, certain certain books, I I can't I as as much as I loved them when I was reading them on the page, when I was listening to them on audio, I couldn't finish because that illuminated to me exactly how clunky the writing was. Um, but on the flip side, something that I didn't actually love on the page, a really great narrator can actually pull me through the text as well. So it is it is a different experience, or at least it is for me. So, but let's also just talk about what we consider clunky writing. Yeah, I think there's lots of different different examples. One for me is um, when the sentence length isn't varied. When you either have all short declarative sentences or you either have all these long, you know, run-on flowing sentences. Um, if you don't vary your sentence length, it it really does pull me out of the experience of reading because it's unnatural to just have, you know, either one or the other. Um, and so I, I find both. I do see both. I see people who are writing just short sentences over and over with no variation. And then people who, you know, usually the people who enjoy language more are writing these big, long sentences, you know, semicolon after semicolon. And they go on and on for paragraphs sometimes. Um, and it, it's difficult to read those things because you start to forget you know, by the time I get to the end of the sentence, I forget what the beginning of the sentence was. Yeah, when you have, like, seven different subjective clauses, mm -hmm. and then you're kind of like, wait, how did these come together? Yeah. Uh, when, yeah, when sentence length is not varied, it actually, it just, it blends together. It starts to kind of become one long drone, and you don't have any variance in, in tone or emotion or mood or whatever. Um it's also sentence structure that needs variation as well. Like you can't just have, you know, subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. Sometimes you do want to either lead with a, a subjective clause or um, even just have a sentence fragment or, or other things like that, that we've been told growing up is, is not an example of good writing. Um because when used poorly, obviously all of these, like, when used poorly, it's not good writing. But when you are writing fiction, and particularly fiction in first person, you know, nobody actually talks in, in perfect grammatical sentences. And it's really boring to listen to, and it's really boring to read. So variance in sentence structure is very important, I believe. But other things that I find clunky are this is this is going to sound a little bit mean and I don't intend it that way but when 
something sticks out to me as clunky when I feel the author is reaching for a metaphor or some aspect of figurative language to illustrate a point and it doesn't have to be there. I'm going to try and give an example. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, to be completely honest. I, I recognize it when I read it on the page or when I hear it. I, I can't necessarily bring one uh, to mind immediately. But I feel like a lot of writers fall into this trap of thinking that, quote, good writing is metaphorical and beautiful and blah, 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 blah. You know, sentences like, his smile was as warm as melted butter or, you know, something like that. To me, that reads incredibly clunky because you could have said the exact same thing by just saying his smile was warm or just he smiled warmly at me, you know, and it's, it. yes, the language is plainer, but it's less awkward than, you know, having someone's smile described as melted butter. You know, not every author can pull that off, and I would kind of argue that no author can really pull that off. So, <laughs> I don't know, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of times, um, you know, there's there's those awards, what are those awards even called? Um, there's like a literary award that comes out every year, and it's hilarious but it's like the most ridiculous descriptive sentence and the one that I'm thinking of now is like he fell off the he fell off the bridge and landed on the concrete um and his body splattered like um like vegetable soup inside a garbage can and it's like <laughs> like and I remember that that was one of the things you know and it's like but there I'll have to look it up online and we'll link it in the show notes but go ahead and read those and kind of give yourself um Give yourself a, a little quick tutorial in, in what overkill is and, um, you know, and just dial it back a little bit because not everything has to be an image. Not everything has to be evocative. Um, some of your prose just needs to be serviceable. And mm -hmm. so I would say the majority of your pose, prose needs to be serviceable. Yeah. So, yeah. So take a look at those awards and, uh, and calm your impulse to to overly describe things. Um, so yeah, that is one way that prose can be clunky. Um, what are other things that really stick out in prose? Um, I think you want to be really careful when you do dialects. Oh God. Yes. I think that really mostly you probably shouldn't do dialects. I think it's really easy to get really in really, really horrific waters with dialects. Um, just in general, they're just not it. One that's it's tedious to read when everything, you know, is, is written as a dialect. It's obnoxious to read it. Um, I would much rather you just describe what the person's voice or accent sounds like and then write their dialogue in normal, you know, words. Well, and a good writer would, would hear that dialect is not necessarily how the words are said, but how the sentences are put 
together. Yeah. There's a certain sort of rhythm and patterns of speech that come from dialect that don't re- you don't rely or you shouldn't rely on like dropped, you know, G's at the end of sentences or things like that. Um and and a really good writer who listens is to me I think a good writer is is somebody who listens, who pays attention to the way things and words sound. Um, so if you're a good writer, you will listen to that and you will pick up the inherent musicality of the dialect without literally having to spell it out for your reader. Because when you do literally spell it out for your reader, it is excruciating and, and a lot of times tone deaf and, you know, in many ways, you know, like musically tone deaf, but also culturally tone deaf. And it's very, very excruciating. Just awful, actually, and awkward to to read dialects. So I would I would be careful about that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, other examples of clunky dialogue, to me. So aside from the metaphorical reaching, which to me I see a lot of a lot of writers try and do. Um, the other example I have of clunky writing is when I read a book and. It just, it's, it's, I I can't see anything. This is going to sound weird, but it doesn't call to mind anything, you know, because, you know, I've talked, Kelly and I have said, you know, your prose should be serviceable most of the time, but it should still be in service of telling your story. And there is sometimes writing that is just so workhorse like, you know, it literally gets, you know, the plot from A to B. To the point where I just, I can't imagine anything. It's hard to imagine what's going on. It's hard to see what's going on. It's hard to understand what the characters are feeling. And it doesn't give me any sort of context. Again, this is a hard example to think of, you know, in like one or two sentences. But there are a lot of writers who are so concerned about what happens that I, I get lost. You know, action is something that is actually pretty hard, to, hard I think, to write. Much harder than people think. Um, because I have read a lot of books where it either starts out with an action sequence or there are battle sequences in the middle, and I often find myself, myself skimming them. Because there's only so much you can read where so-and-so, you know, lunged out with his sword, then parried right, and then ducked out of the way as his opponent swung the battle axe over his head. And this goes on and on and on for a long time. You can describe to the letter what is happening, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be engaging. So, to me, that is another example of clunky writing, when it just, it doesn't evoke anything, any emotion or any feeling within me. So that that's that's one as well. Um, I, you know, do you have any other examples you can think of as as I'm trying to sort of call to mind examples that I find of sort of clunky writing? Clunky writing. Um, you know, I think the description is a big one. I think dialogue in general, too, is often a a thing that writers struggle with to write realistic dialogue. A lot of times it sounds really stilted. Um, 
and you get a lot of things with like characters always calling each other, you know, by name every time they say something to someone else and like just saying like really bizarre formal things that people don't say that like that that you know, when you live with your family for example, there's like there's a shorthand that comes of living with people whether it's your roommates or your parents or your spouse or your kids you know, you you have like a a little lexicon created, you know, by that proximity and by knowing these people and spending time with them and caring about them and and that familiar familiarity. I can't say that word when I'm sick. I don't know why. That um, sense of being known should um, should inform the way that your characters speak to one another and and dialogue that's poorly written is really really terrible to read you guys it's very unpleasant it's it's overly expository you know you know dialogue that explains what is happening in the scene the also when people sound alike not everybody speaks the same same way yeah and when people are speaking when they don't need to be speaking you know like if someone is like saying like here, come with me to the other room. Like, would they really say that? Or would they just, like, jerk their head and walk toward the other room? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, ways in which people are, are talking, but um, but there's no real need for them to talk. Or you can communicate that information in other ways. Yeah. <laughs> Dialogue in particular is something that, if it's badly written, can kind of bog down a book for me. A lot of times for me, it is the over overly expository dialogue that the as you know, Bob. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. And also, um, people writing teens who aren't teenagers oh. anymore. <laughs> you cannot, you cannot just put some slang into dialogue and suddenly have teenagers speaking. Like that is not the way that teens speak. It's not just like dropping things like on fleek into your, you know, story and then having it suddenly be about teens. If you're an adult writing teenagers, make sure that you know how teens actually talk. Yeah. Well, slang in general, I'm not a huge fan of because I, I, I tend to find that it, it dates a book yeah. extremely quickly. Um, particularly because slang evolves <laughs> so fast. Even the slang that we used when I was a child, and nobody would understand now. Um, and even the slang that we heard was not often used necessarily in everyday speech. Not to the extent that some people think teens use slang <laughs> in fiction anyway. Um, and I think, to me, the the biggest thing about clunky or what I call mediocre writing really, um, is, is it, is that it doesn't evoke feeling and it's just a lot of telling, even though, even if the writing, even if the actual storytelling is showing you something as in they're showing you action or they're showing you a conversation or they're showing you this, it still feels like it's telling when it doesn't evoke any emotion. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me. What, to me, good writing, whether it's flowery or whether it's simple, makes me feel <laughs> something. 
you know, an example I always think of is, is actually, as I've, I might have mentioned last year, was Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, who does write very simplistically um, and kind of short, brisk, curt writing, but it still makes me feel something. And he doesn't necessarily describe in detail what his protagonists are feeling, but he's laid out the situation and the context for you. Um, what's the name of the one where he has his balls shot off? The sun also rises. Yep, that was the title. It's the best one. It is the best one, in my opinion. But, you know, he is impotent. He is unable to be with the woman he loves. And he doesn't dwell on this at all. And yet, you know, there's, I think, a scene where the protagonist, you know, just says he went up to his room and he's, I sat down and I cried. And that was all I needed to feel for this character because of everything else Hemingway had laid down for me. So, you know, it, it is sentence craft, like I said, is subjective in that way, but it's how it's put together that makes a big difference, in my opinion. So if I don't feel anything, then I don't necessarily consider it good writing. Another example, the opposite example that I will, I will name... Um, is his Dan Brown, who, you know, he's a really great storyteller, to be honest. You know, he's really good at making me turn the pages, even as I find his writing so clunky to the point of being absolutely noticeable, if that makes sense. Like, I, I will absolutely keep those t- pages turning because I want to know what happens next, but I'm also at the same time being tripped over by how awkward the writing is. Um, there is an amazing review of Dan Brown's work. Um, I think it was in the Telegraph. Somebody had had done a review of Dan Brown's writing in the style of Dan Brown, which I will link to in the show notes because it's kind of amazing. Um, (laughs) because once you read that review, it absolutely highlights all of, all of the clunky flaws where he constantly repeats, you know, middle-aged handsome Robert Langdon and it, like he repeats that like every single time uh, you know and it's 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 quite funny it's so I I will I will link that and I highly encourage you all to go read it um other things about mediocre writing is when they're when when the writing is trying too hard to evoke a feeling in me and then goes nowhere this is often the problem with what I consider purple purple prose. Now, I can't necessarily say anything. I I tend to write very purple myself, and I tend to go on and on and on and on and ramble about feelings for forever and ever. Um, so I'm not excluding myself from this number, but purple prose is something that's a little bit different from what I consider clunky, although it is a form of clunkiness or what I consider just kind of flat, mediocre writing, purple prose overstuffs the sensory sensory details to the point where none of it makes sense anymore. You know, and it gets very abstract. So, you know, again, Kelly and I have always reiterated that clarity is the most important thing when it comes to reading and good writing. You know, and when things are so flowery and so abstract, you know, when 
when you're describing that the moon is smiling down upon the silver landscape, and you're kind of like, but what is that supposed to evoke in me? Exactly. You know, things like that, that I tend to kind of roll my eyes a little bit and just be like, okay, you could have, but you could have said this a lot simpler. Of course, this is something that I do struggle with. So it's something that when I go through my own writing that I have to kind of consciously, you know, strip out my worst excesses, but I am aware of it. You know, and I think when you are aware of it, it helps you cut down on the abstractness that purple writing can you know, can, can be. <laughs> so, I don't know, do you have anything else to say about either Dan Brown-esque writing <laughs> or overly purple writing? No, I mean, <clears throat> I think that you pretty much nailed it in terms of, you know, why those things don't work, I guess, because it's not, it's not that we don't like purple prose. It's not that, you know, that, that it's bad or that, people who do it don't write well or anything like that it's that it's not effective or it's detracting from you know the greater the greater purpose of your story um so if you tend to write purple or if you tend to write you know the in the opposite Dan Brown sort of way don't don't feel like you're doing it wrong but but seek to to do those things to the best of your ability. Find the places where it's okay to be purple in those sections of your story where it's okay to be really descriptive and really lush and then tone it back on the places when it's not, you know? Yeah, the I writing is not just sentence and it's not just storytelling. It is a combination of both. And I do differentiate writing craft from storytelling you know, a storyteller knows the rhythm and the beats and the pace, you know, the pacing of the story, what order the events should come in, what emphasis should be placed on the orders and a lot of the, the, the things that happen. So a lot of that is instinctual for a lot of people. Um, it is something again, that can be worked on and can be taught. You know, we talk about tone and mood and we talk about pacing and stakes and conflict and all of that. You can learn those sorts of things, but, and, but a lot of that does come instinctually to a lot of writers, and that those are what I consider storytelling aspects. But writing is essentially the vehicle to tell your story. So the writing craft needs to go hand in hand with the storytelling and not overwhelm it and also not undermine it. <laughs> um, I just found a bit of the Dan Brown review that I will link to. It is written by Michael Deacon. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll just read one paragraph that I think pretty much sums up exactly how awkward Dan Brown's writing can be. The critics said his writing was clumsy, ungrammatical, repetitive, and repetitive. They said it was full of unnecessary tautology. They said his prose was mired in a sea of mixed metaphors. For some reason, they found something funny in sentences such as, His eyes went white, like a shark about to attack. They even say my books are packed with banal and superfluous description, thought the five-foot-nine-inch man. He particularly hated it when they said his imagery was nonsensical. It made his insect eyes flash like a rocket. (laughs) (laughs) So read, read this entire review, and I hope, you know, you can kind of pick out exactly why this is considered just 
clunky writing. uh, Those mixed metaphors that come in, the, as as they said, the unnecessary tautology, the repetition, the weird insistence on describing what people (laughs) look like in really inappropriate moments. Um, So a lot of that is, you know, is extremely awkward to read, and it is to me is the mark of a novice or amateur writer, somebody who who is in control of their craft, who is in control of their writing, and is able to marry that to their storytelling, is is somebody I think who is ready to be professionally published. Of course, there is Dan Brown, so I can't say anything. But <laughs> um, and and. You know, to be honest, you don't have to be that great of a writer if you are able to get your readers turning the pages. And in many ways, that's better than the other way around. You know, to be able to write beautifully and not be able to tell a story is, for me anyway, less interesting. I would rather know the story. I'd rather get caught up in the story. And even if I'm pulled out occasionally by somebody's green eyes like grass you know whatever if if, if i'm occasionally pulled out of the text by something like that i'm willing to forgive it if i still care about the characters and i want to know what happens next so but we're just pointing out the sentence level things that people can work on because you know the better your writing is the more invisible it gets and the more caught up in the story your readers can be so do we have anything else to add I don't think so. So, all right. Then we can move on to our next segments, which is, what are you working on? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Um, NaNoWriMo crashed and burned. Oh, um, God. I think it crashed and burned for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. That was not a thing that was going to continue happening for me. Um, which is okay. That's fine. Um so no, not working on anything. What about you? It took me a long while to find my way back to writing after the election. I mean, I was anxious beforehand, which was hard in its own way. And then afterwards, I was just gobsmacked, really. There's no other word to describe it. It just, I felt like somebody had, like, punched me in the face a bit. I was a little bit, it just kind of recovering from that just trying to find my footing and trying to find my equilibrium and but I I think I'm you know it took about a month it took a lot it took a bit longer than I expected but I am writing again in book two um the deadline of course has gone completely out the window but it's you know I have talked to my editor and my agent and they're just sort of like you know write as you you need to of course this is book two so it's not coming out until 2018 so it's not like I'm exactly strapped for time or anything but I I am getting into it I think some of the election stuff beforehand was because it was stressing me out I couldn't move forward in that I didn't have a sense of forward momentum even though I knew what I wanted to happen in the story I didn't have a sense of momentum of, of inevitability of the things that happen in my book so I couldn't figure that out. So I decided to burn it all to the ground and start from scratch, which is what I did last week. Um, but I feel a lot better about it, actually. I, of course, 
I, I, and, and, you know, a lot of people are like, we just, you know, you just write, just write till you finish, just write till you finish. Just, and I do believe that, that it doesn't matter how terrible your first draft is as long as you finish your first draft. But for me, I need to have forward momentum in the story. This, this feeling that you're being pulled along, that the characters are being pulled along in, in the narrative and it's going forward and they're swept up in it. And, Without that, I can't necessarily move forward. So if I just burn everything I have to the ground and write it again with a sense of momentum, then I feel better about it. So it's not like trying to perfect perfect it, because I'm sure in revisions there are things I'm going to revise and change or whatever. But without the baggage of all the old words that I had written, which was at that point 35,000 words that I just scrapped and started again and moved forward, and I feel a lot better. So... That's that's me on my book. So. Good. Have you read anything? No, really? Oh. You know, I was thinking about it. I wanted, again, post-election, I, I really wanted comfort reads. I didn't want to think too hard. I didn't know what I wanted to read, so I ended up reading fan fiction, which I love. Um... Because it's like characters that I know, and a lot of it is fluffy, or if it's not fluffy, it's angsty in a way that everything turns out okay, you know, in a kind of cathartic sort of way. You know, fan fiction can do that. Um, I mean, I have read, I have read, I read Tales, I think Tales from the Shadowhunter Academy. It's the newest novella bind up um, by Cassandra Clare and some other co writers. This takes place after the Moral Instruments sextet, and uh, it's about the character of Simon. And I really enjoyed all of them. Of course, Simon is actually my favorite character in Cassandra Clare's series. So I, he's just, I, I love him, and I think it's great. So it was really fun to read those. Um, so I read that. I read, reread um, The Lunar Chronicles by Marissa Meyer, because that was something else that I find comforting to read and they're very fun. Um, Marissa Meyer, Meyer used to write Sailor Moon fan fiction and I used to read her Sailor Moon fan fiction when I was 12. So she, a lot of those qualities that I loved in her fan fiction when I was that age do translate into the Lunar Chronicles. So I wanted kind of like a fan y feeling. So I read all of those. Um, <laughs> I read some erotica trying to find something Good. There's um, a series by a writer named Megan Hart called The Order of Solace, which is kind of a fantasy erotica series, but it's not even really erotica so much as maybe erotic romance. But I li- what I liked about those is she wrote extremely well, and it was in a fantasy setting. And I'm, a lot of erotica that is published these days tends to be contemporary, which I'm just, I don't really care about the world we live in, especially now. Um, so I wanted some escapism. And I discovered that Anne Rice had written a fourth book to her Sleeping Beauty trilogy. Oh, now, if you guys don't know what the Sleeping Beauty trilogy is, this was something that I think was written in the 80s, perhaps. But Anne Rice wrote a, a trilogy of erotica, starting with a, the claiming of Sleeping Beauty under the pen name A.N. Rocolaire. And I read these a while ago, and they're actually not very good. <laughs> um, 
but I was curious because I think this this fourth book came out last year or so. So I read it. Um, it's very pretty recent, and she does some things differently in this one because the the first trilogy was BDSM erotica, and the issue of consent was non-existent, and it was quite rapey, but if you kind of, like, put it in the framework of a fantasy realm, you can kind of go with it, maybe. Um, so she addresses that in this newest book, where it's all voluntary, and the issue of consent is extremely clear, and I thought that was really cool, but it's also stultifyingly boring. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, this is really dull. Um... So yeah, that was that was it as well. And <laughs> Carrie Ryan recommended me an erotica novel as well called Priest by Sierra Simone because it is the pen name of a pretty well-known YA author. She wouldn't tell me who it was. So I had to read it after that to be like, do I know who this is? So if any of y'all are sleuths, and, and and want to read this and maybe give me your theories about who it is, uh, I would be very curious. So so I guess I read a lot more than I thought. <laughs> Nothing that I intended to read, because there are books that I actually intended to read, right. just didn't read any of them. <laughs> so what about you? I read quite a bit, because I went on vacation for the week of Thanksgiving, and I always get a lot of reading done then, because I don't have to worry about childcare, because my mom... <laughs> just takes care of Penny, and I just lay in bed and read all day, and it's great. So I read quite a bit. Um, I finally read Empire of Storms by Sarah J. Moss. Mm. Um, We should talk after this is over. We should talk. I read that. I read Like a a River Glorious by Ray Carson, which is the second book in the Gold Seekers trilogy. Yeah, it's out. I liked it quite a bit. I really liked the first one. I like the second one as well. Um, there are, um, I believe there are criticisms in the second book as there were of the first about the uh, native representation. So do keep those in mind when you read. Um, I'm really curious because it says right on it, the subtitle is a gold seer trilogy. And I feel like the series is over after book two. I don't huh. feel like there is a single remaining issue. I feel like everything has been completely resolved in a satisfying way and there's no open threads and so I don't understand (laughs) what the third book is going to be. Um, But I really enjoyed that. Um, I also read I read To All the Boys I Loved Before by Jenny Han. Oh, I like that book. It is so not my typical book. It is a contemporary um, YA, uh, romance, essentially. Um, it is absolutely adorable. I could not, I read it in one sitting and on the plane ride from, um, Boston back home to Minneapolis. And I just loved every single second of reading that book. I don't know if it was just, I don't know what it was about it. I just thought it was the most adorable thing I'd ever read. And I loved it. Um, I really like Jenny Han. She wrote another YA romance trilogy, and it's called The Summer I Turned Pretty is the first one. And I loved all of those. 
they kind of give me this like nostalgic feeling about yeah. being a teenager and like having your crush and that sort of intensity of first love and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I love Jenny Han, and again, it's not my typical thing either, but I also really liked To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I haven't read the sequel, but yeah, I, I should the, get around to I'm it. I'm on the waiting list, so hopefully it will come through soon. Um, so I read that. I read Swarm, which is the second book in the Zeros trilogy by Scott Westerfield. Margot Lanahan and Deborah, um, oh, her name is Biancotti. There you go, Biancotti. Um, and that was okay. I really enjoyed the first one. I felt like this one wasn't as successful for me personally. So, meh, that was fine. Um, but then the big thing really is that I read all of Saga. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> I read all of Saga. Um, I went to see Hamilton. I haven't talked about that, I think, since the last time we recorded. Yeah, yeah. Because that was post-election, too. Um, my husband and I went to Chicago, and we saw Hamilton, and it was incredible. And while we were in Chicago seeing Hamilton, um, we met up with a friend of ours, Mike, who, if you listen to the um, the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion podcast that JJ and I do. Mike is our co-host there. That also took an unexpected hiatus for the election. That's yes. kind of lost my mind. Um, but we hung out with Mike there. And Mike is, as I've mentioned um, in other places, my, my comics and pop culture guru. And he's been telling me about Saga for years. And JJ has recently read Saga and has also been telling me that it is great. And so he took me to a comic book shop and we bought the first trade. And we read that, and then um, by the end of the week, we had bought all six of the trade volumes currently available and read those. And then we were so desperate that we started reading single issues. <laughs> so I'm actually caught up now to the entire story, including the single issues that are out later, which is killing me because JJ's waiting for the trades, and so I can't tell her what happened. Yeah, don't don't spoil me. I I loved the experience of reading the six volumes in one go. I pretty yeah. much read them in a fugue state. I just sat and blew through all of them and cried my eyes out. Um, the saga is excellent, and it's kind of hard to describe to people, especially people who don't really read comics. I think they might be a little bit like, mm, I'm not sure. Um, but saga is excellent, and. I, I I am waiting for the trades because Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples do work on them sort of six issues at a time. They do story arcs that get then get bound up in the trade volumes. So I feel like if I'm reading a single issue by single issue, it's like one short episode and then I have to wait like a month for the next short episode and like another month and I just figured I might as well binge all of them at the same time. Because they're so short. I mean, even the trades are, I think, less than 200 pages. So they're not very long at all. So it's kind of like, I might as well wait till there's another arc to yeah, read. It, and then... it is agonizing to read it when I shoot a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, Saga is... Now, now I'm thinking about it. It's, it really was like I was in such a big book hangover after having read Saga, that I was just like, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't... <laughs> I have so many feelings about this family. <laughs> and it's so great. So, yeah. So we, I guess we did do a lot of reading over our unexpected hiatus. A lot of hiatus. escapism. Yeah, a lot of escapism. 
So, off-menu recommendations. You said you went to Hamilton? I did. It was incredible. Um, it really was truly wonderful. The Chicago cast is superb. They're really excellent. Um, I loved it. Every minute of it was super, super great. Um, beyond that, I do have a new podcast that I'm listening to, um, <laughs> which is um, Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, which is, um, I guess, a podcast that does serialized radio dramas, and so they've done several different ones um, all in a row, and I actually haven't listened to any of the previous ones. I just came on board with the most current one, which is called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, and <laughs> it is a musical satire of Serial the Podcast, so if you like musical theater and you liked Serial, you should absolutely 100% listen to this. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is actually a game show podcast. Yes. So. <laughs> yep. So this is Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me on Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. And the songs have been stuck in my head ever, ever since I first listened to it. It's really great. There's some very talented people. Um, it is a satire. Um Without getting too spoilery, it's not complete. It's still ongoing. But without getting too spoilery, it's not um, it, It's not like a play-by-play -play of the actual serial podcast. It's much more about, um, about the way that we engage with true crime and, you know, what that does to us as listeners and what that does to the people who are reporting it and people who become involved with their, um, you know, with the, with the stories that they're reporting. And so it's definitely, um, it, it definitely goes way off, you know, there's a hard right turn probably pretty soon in. So, um, but it's great. The music is great. The performances are great. Um, so I've been listening to that and enjoying that thoroughly. Awesome. What about you? Um, I got into booktube. <laughs> uh, so this is a thing that just betrays how old I am. Uh, I did, I mentioned before I went to, um, Yellfest, as I have the past four years now, I guess. And, um, there were a lot of young people there who were on panels and, and stuff. And I kind of leaned over to some of my friends and was like, I don't know who they are. Can you tell me who they are? And they're like, oh, they're booktubers. And so I, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole of this entire section of the YA book community that I had previously not heard of, because I am old. Um, so, you know, it, I find it kind of cute and charming. These are generally people who've read books and they talk about their, you know, thoughts, reviews, feelings, whatever. Um, there is one particular booktuber who I do like, mostly because her tastes and mine are really really aligned so um her and her name is samantha and her channel is called thoughts on tomes so uh if you guys are interested i can put a link to her channel there when i i you know i think she does some really smart analysis you know even when she loves a book she's able to think and talk critically about them um and even if she, and when she doesn't like a book she's also able to talk critically about why she doesn't like a book so i i do Re highly recommend her and um 
So I, I fell into book two, which was weird. I did not expect to do that. <laughs> um, other things that I've been doing outside. Oh, oh I'm knitting. Um, <laughs> we mentioned knitting in my in our last podcast. Yeah. Um, but so on the weekends, it's gotten cold here now in North Carolina. And during the day, I don't really want to turn on the heat. Like at night, I will turn on the heat here, but I don't really feel like turning the heat on during the day. And when I'm writing, my hands get stupidly cold. So um, I decided that I was going to knit myself a pair of hand warmers. Um, So that's my kind of not writing project. This is when I really miss public transportation. This is when I really miss like riding the subway because I used to do a lot of knitting on my commutes. So, and I can't do that now because I drive. So, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, I think that's more or less, more or less what I have for off-menu recommendations. So, uh, I think we had, we had one question on SoundCloud, which was kind of an odd place to to send us a question, you guys. But uh, whatever works for you. Um, But I'm I'm not going to specifically talk about the content of this particular question, but they asked a question about plagiarism and warranty with regards to a specific author. Plagiarism is, I think we should define what plagiarism is, because I think a lot of people are confused about what the meaning of plagiarism actually is. Because when a book is similar to another book in concept or idea, that is not plagiarism. It just means that they're similar to each other. You know, ideas cannot be copyrighted. No, I do want to make this clear because I have seen other criticisms of other YA books about being like, oh, this plagiarized Star Wars or this plagiarized the Hunger Games, blah, 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 blah. Mm, Not quite, because you could make the same argument that the Hunger Games plagiarized Battle Royale which is essentially the exact same premise where a bunch of teenagers have to kill each other on reality TV. This is a Japanese novel. So I think, you know, and it's not plagiarism when you have the same premise as somebody else. It is plagiarism when you lift significant bits of their text. So... When you lift wholesale someone else's work, that's what we mean. That's what we mean by plagiarism. It's not that you are lifting their idea. You're lifting passages of someone else's writing. That's the work that they've done. And if you are lifting that and passing that off as your own, that is considered plagiarism. For example, years and years ago now on the internet, um, I believe it was actually the Smart Bitches Trashy Books website that revealed plagiarism in the romance novelist Cassie Edwards. She plagiarized a bunch of scholarly articles about black-footed ferrets. I believe it's still all online on their website, which I'll put a link to. And it was quite fascinating how they got to that conclusion and how they found out. Um, and the reason they found out was because these passages about black-footed ferrets seemed to jar with the writing style that surrounded the passage. So they got, then they got curious, and they started Googling, and then they realized that the author had lifted passages from a naturalist who was writing about black-footed ferrets. So that is an example of real-life plagiarism. So that is plagiarism 
the similarity of one idea to another is not. So it would not be in violation of your warranty. So I hope that clears up your question. Um, I don't believe we have any others this week, but as always, if you guys have any further questions to ask, you can always, you know, ping us on email, which is publishingcrawl at gmail.com. You can ask us on Tumblr, um, or you can ask us on Twitter, which is honestly the, probably the fastest way to get to us. Um, and you can use the hashtag askpubcrawl. So it also appears we do not have any new reviews. So just if you guys, you know, want to, want to leave us some love and have it heard, have it heard on the podcast, uh, I more than welcome you to go ahead and do that. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about tropes. Actually, we're going to start a new series of, uh, about examining tropes in literature. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your... Right. Let's try this again. You can also follow us on Twitter at Publishing Crawl. No. <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at Pub Crawl Blog. Or... Why am I, like, having trouble <laughs> reading words? Oh, my God. It's been a while, Kelly. We can forgive ourselves. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs> Can you tell god. we haven't done this in a while? Oh my god. <laughs>